So pushing these new techniques and technologies that allow for animal-free research, I think is going to be the most effective way of, of reducing animal usage uh, in, in science. Hi there, this is Carla Owen, Chief Executive of Animal Free Research UK, and this is the Animal Free Labcast, the show dedicated to a kinder modern science that puts humans at the heart of medical research. Today I'm talking with Dr Paul Holloway, a stroke researcher working at the University of Oxford. I'll be asking Paul about his personal and scientific reasons for doing his work in an animal-free, human-relevant way. So stay tuned to learn about Paul's work and how his interest in science, engineering and art combine to help him find creative new solutions in stroke research. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Free Labcast today. Pleasure to be here. Could you start off by just uh, introducing yourself and, and what it is that you do? Sure. So, my name is Paul Holloway, uh, and I'm a stroke researcher developing microfluidic neurological models uh, at the University of Oxford. So, microfluidic neuronal Neuro- neuronal or neurological models either would work. Yeah. So tell, tell us what that means. Uh, so the microfluidic in that is uh, kind of what it sounds like. So micro is in small and fluidic is in fluid flows. The neurological mm-hmm. is uh, related to neurons in the brain. So I'm studying stroke research. Uh, and the models sure. is basically uh, what we test drugs in to be able to develop new drugs. Fabulous. So stroke research stroke. at a very small level. Exactly that, yeah. <laughs> so can you um, tell us a bit about why animal-free, human-relevant research is so important to you and your work? Yeah, so um, uh, I guess I sort of really started on working with animal research uh, some time ago, really. During my uh, PhD at Imperial College, uh, I was developing uh, new uh, new treatments for stroke, so to test test out these drugs and to find if they're safe uh, and if they have a chance to, to uh, treat this disease and improve uh, people's lives. So for this, I had to do mm. some animal research in in mice, and uh, and so this is actually quite a difficult decision that I don't think many people really appreciate. Sort of the the stereotype sure. of a scientist would be some like heartless mad professor performing <laughs> Frankenstein experiments, uh, unaware mm. or I guess even worse, uh, uncaring of the ethical. Uh, implications, yeah. but this really isn't the case. You know, every scientist I've, I've known uh, has been involved in in any way in animal research uh, has to grapple with this ethical issue surrounding animal research, asking whether it's necessary to to be able to produce drugs that will reduce human suffering and find new treatments. So I really wrestled with this during my PhD. Uh, so finding the work very challenging and emotionally draining. Mm. So it really got me thinking. You know, there has to be a better way and. But but there actually wasn't. So, uh, but there could be. Uh, and so, really, ever since my my scientific career has been really devoted to working on developing technologies and techniques that could allow researchers to test drugs and gain insights into stroke without actually needing to use or rely on animal research. So, inventing that better way then. Yeah, it wasn't one, so you invented it. Exactly, yeah, I mean, and especially for stroke, it's it's kind of a, was a, not only a neglected area for uh, for research, but also in terms of the ways that we can test drugs and the way that we can produce drugs. It was very heavily relying on animal research because the brain is so complex, and mm. really there was a deficit of of ways, alternatives, and and this is what I, I've I've been working on is to try and provide an alternative so we can produce drugs, hopefully with better prediction if they work in the clinic, but also so we can avoid using animals. 
So, so clearly a scientific motivation then, but, but an emotional one or a personal one as well? Uh, I mean, of course, reducing the uh, the suffering and usage of animals is is a, is a major one, but also of humans as well. Um, so the disease burden of stroke is is one driving factor. There's about 12 million people worldwide who have a stroke each year, and uh, 6.5, I think, uh, million people die each year of stroke. And and think stroke is an injury of the brain. Uh, this kind of a knock-on effect of um, any of your your bodily functions, you know, your movement, your speech, even your personality. So it's actually the largest cause of adult disability worldwide as well. So for those um, that survive, it can be an extremely difficult disease to live with, not only for them, but also for their family. So we really need new medicines for stroke as well. My uh, my father actually had a stroke uh, some years back, but he was very lucky in that it was, um, it was uh, a mild stroke and that he had a very quick recovery. But it just sort of exemplifies it's a very sort of fit and healthy person that it can really sort of, it's really the disease of the elderly, but I mean, it can happen to anyone and uh, and the impact can be devastating. So really, uh, not only is there a personal motivation for me in terms of uh, producing alternatives for animal research to reduce that suffering, but also with the um, <laughs> perhaps quite far off aim of hopefully uh, producing drugs that might one day uh, help uh, stroke sufferers. So with stroke research, when, you know, what was it that made you decide that you wanted to do? I mean, obviously, you've just talked about personal motivation, family connection. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it, were you always really clear that you wanted to go down that path of of researching stroke? (laughs) Um, Not really at all. I don't think I was even clear that I'd I'd like to do science, really. Initially, I was going to do fine arts. I actually went to to, a fine art foundation course doing... uh, uh, oh, did you? To do, uh, yeah, to do to painting. I, I loved loved to paint, and um, oh. uh, but anyway, I, I went went through that sort of thinking. What is what is the use of art, and and all these questions, these big questions you have as a teenager, and think, well, what can I really do to uh, to help people? Is art going to help people? Since then, I've realised, yeah, absolutely, art can help people. But at the time, I was I was thinking, well. What can I do to help people? I was a bit late to do uh, to do medicine, so it turned out biology could could kind of maybe help people. So um, <laughs> so I wasn't even sure at the start that I would do science and then I sort of got a, got sucked into it and the really amazing complexity of the human body really interested me in how things work and then mm. being able to study a disease and something that might eventually uh, lead to a discovery that could could one day help someone was was for sure a bonus and something that I would be very interested in exploring and have since tried to explore. Absolutely. It's it's interesting you mentioned about art because I have spoken to quite a few scientists who also have art as a as an interest and have, you know, maybe you know, explored that. In um in series one of the podcasts I talked to Dr. Don Ingber, who I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And he he's really into his art as well and, you know, does paintings and things. So and I think, you know, I was talking with him about how that, that side of the brain is really important for scientists because it helps you to have that creativity and looking for those innovative solutions. Absolutely. But some people forget that but, uh, science itself is a very creative process, sort of uh, fault finding and finding unique solutions to a problem. Uh, and luckily now being slightly involved in some sort of engineering, which is to produce these devices uh, rather than just mm. studying biology from afar. I'm also kind of uh, trying to provide environments for cells to grow in that would mimic the brain. Having that engineering sort of side of things allows me to also be creative in, in finding solutions to uh, to create models as well. 
So can you tell us about um, a solution that you've you've found that you know you're particularly excited about? Um, so one one solution which I'm exploring actually um, with uh, another the, the uh, Animal Free Research UK has, has trusted me with some more of their money, which I'm very grateful for to uh, to test out <laughs> a, uh, a, a new solution. So this is uh, again uh, focusing on stroke, uh, but here we're looking uh, specifically at. Uh, how neurons communicate and uh, how the cells of the brain connect to each other. And so in stroke, you can have a very localized injury. So blood flow can be blocked to part of the brain in an ischemic stroke is what we call it. And so that one area, will the cells will start to die um, from lack of oxygen and glucose. But what can also happen is that the um, neurons, the brain cells can start to dysfunction and they signal to other cells. And so suddenly an area that is remote from the injury but connected to that injury can start to also malfunction or have problems. And so Mm. the mechanisms by which cells communicate this damage and remote cells start to die is not really known. So um, what I've been doing is is making... uh, what uh, what we call microfluidic devices or organ on chip sort of technologies and techniques uh, i've been making these these very very small sort of devices where i can culture cells in them i can culture human brain cells in them and create connections so uh, a very simplistic example and this is the one that i'm i'm exploring is there would be to have uh, two cell culture compartments two rooms, if you like, for the cells. And they're connected mm-hmm. uh, by very, very long, thin corridors. Now, these are very, very small corridors as well. They're smaller than a cell. They're about one micron. That's tiny. Yeah. Smaller than a cell. <laughs> they're about one micron in height. So if you think about a human hair, if you were to split that uh, by 100 lengthways, that, that would be one micron there around. Wow. So... Um, these little connections between the cell culture departments are too small for the cells to go across, but they can send their axons, the wires that the neurons connect between, through there so that each cell compartment is in communication with the other. And so what I'm doing now is developing, with, with this funding, is developing a technique to remove oxygen and glucose from one side of this, um, uh, this device. So one lot of cells experiences a stroke, and then the other cells that are connected to them is not experiencing a stroke. And so mm-hmm. now this allows us to study ways in which those cells communicate that damage across between their neuronal connections in a very controlled way, and specifically in human cells as well. So is that early days with that research? Early days with that, yeah. any results yet? So this is a pump, <laughs> pump priming uh, grant that Samuel Free Research has, uh, is providing for me to be able to do this and explore the mechanisms because there's some down the line, once we've got this set up, there's some really uh, interesting phenomena that are happening. Cells can sometimes communicate protective signals that maybe we could take advantage of and uh, uh, and so give a drug that uh, amplifies these protective signals that the cells are sending when they experience a stroke. Um, so early days, but I mean, I, I'm very excited about uh, being able to produce this platform that will allow researchers to to explore um, these theories uh, and potential drugs in, the, in this system. You're listening to the Animal Free Labcast with me, Carla Owen, Chief Executive of Animal Free Research UK and my guest, Dr. Paul Holloway. If you're enjoying this episode, please leave us a review and share with your friends to help us spread the word. 
So what's been the advantage of using a, a human-relevant, animal-free research approach to your work, Paul? So, yeah, so it opens up a number of opportunities. Um, and many researchers are using this to improve drug discovery worldwide, really. So drug discovery is a, a very expensive and inefficient process. Yeah. It takes about 10 years to produce a drug and, uh, and costs over uh, over a billion dollars. And even then, about yeah. 90% of the drugs... Staggering, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. 90% of those drugs actually fail that uh, enter clinical trials. Um, yeah. So uh, and even despite improvements in technology, this seems to actually be getting worse. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will know of Moore's Law, uh, which is improvements in technology showing that, um, that the number of transistors on a, on a computer chip doubles about every two years. Uh, so computing power is increasing exponentially, whereas drug discovery, it's almost the inverse. So if we flip that, we get E-Room's Law, uh, which in this law, the inflation adjusted cost of developing a new drug roughly doubles every nine years. So this is so it's, it seems to be getting worse. So there's uh, multiple reasons. It's quite for this. staggering, isn't it? Mm. We we were talking about Erum's law just on Monday, and I was like, "Oh, elephant in the room law." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there, there's multiple reasons for this. So there's one is called the better than the Beatles problem. So um, your new drug has to be better than the the current one, uh, and if the current yeah. one is Hey Jude, you know, then the new it's got to be hard to follow that. Um, another one is yeah. the low-hanging fruit problem. So uh, perhaps we've discovered all the easily discoverable drugs um, and we're only left with the hard ones. Uh, but kind of regardless of this, a, a major problem is uh, predicting if a drug's going to work and the models that we test them in. Yeah. So George uh, Box was a famous statistician who coined the phrase that all models are wrong, but but some are useful. Um, so mm. we need to find useful models. And um, as the drugs are getting more complex, we're realizing that there's a number of differences in animals, uh, animal models that, uh, and unique sort of properties of human cells that really we need to use human cells. And, and using these animal-free techniques, improving these animal-free techniques will hopefully improve drug discovery and, and allow us to predict better if a drug is going to work or not. I mean, to be honest, can't really get much worse, can it? With a ninety percent failure rate, so we've got to try. We, you know, it's it's pretty urgent. We need to find a way to do things better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, there's by using human cells, we can hopefully get better prediction. So there's, yeah. it's not only just the difference in in the size of the animal or the fact that you know a human has two legs and a mouse has has four legs. There's a number of sort of molecular differences and small differences yeah. that are very important in drug discovery. So. Um, for instance, in COVID-19, um, there's a protein on the cell surface called the uh, ACE2 receptor, which allows the virus to enter the person, a person's body. So mice also have this receptor, but there's small molecular differences in that receptor. I mean, the virus is not able to infect the mouse in the same way as it does in the human. So, so they're using human cells is, is particularly important. Um, even subtle differences uh, between uh, animals that are very close, so uh, um, a, a non-human primate uh, and a human, they um, failed to uh, discover the, the effects of um, theralizumab, um, which had a, um, in the clinical trials for that, they had uh, multiple organ failure on some of the, the patients there in the clinical trials that, that wasn't being able to detect during the animal experimentations there. And since then, we've been able to replicate some of these effects in, in non-animal models. So that's really important that the non-animal models 
the human the human relevant models are predicting human responses better than the animal tests would. Yeah, and so this is something that is only really starting to come to the fore. So um, there's multiple aspects we have to consider when when using uh, human cells to kind of predict what's going to happen in the human body. And it's not only the cells, it's also the environment those those cells are in. Um, sure. So they respond to to different environments. And we're, we're increasingly re- realising that if we're going to get better prediction of a drug's effect in using human cells, we also need to provide uh, a more human-like environment for those cells to to grow in. Is that... So when, you know, scientists often talk about cell culture, and so... And I'm always a bit puzzled about cell culture. Like, it's used all the time, and I still don't really understand what it is, other than it being mm. like goo, like the goo <laughs> that, that the cells live in. So, but but it sounds a little bit like you're saying, like, this is the cell's environment. So the cell, is that what the cell culture is? Cell culture is the cell's environment, what they live in. So, yeah, so cell culture, we might typically call this uh, in uh, in vitro. So we have in vivo, which means in animal research. So it's the Latin in vivo means uh, in living. Uh, and in vitro is the Latin for in glass. So essentially in a Petri dish. So um, so when we think about in vitro uh, cell culture, this is typically cells grown on a a flat plastic or glass surface. It's nothing like the body. There's no flow over the top of it. We just have a solution of glucose and various proteins on the top of it. And normally these cells are also not often that relevance to human biology, like often they will have cancer or have been genetically manipulated to be immortal. So, I mean, the mm-hmm. most, most famous of these is probably uh, the HeLa cell, uh, which uh, many people might have read the book, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So this was the, uh, the patient who she had, unbeknownst to her, from a cervical cancer biopsy from her, this cell line was, was these cells were taken back in the 50s and have since been grown in the lab, been by many different labs, passed all over the world, and they're still mm-hmm. living. So uh, it's her immortal life that's wow. still still around. But of course, yeah. having been grown so long on glass, they, they've they've changed, and and there's many differences between a typical human cell and a and a HeLa cell, for instance. Humans normally have uh, 46 chromosomes. This one has uh, 76, or between 76 and 80 <laughs> chromosomes. So right, it's quite wow. different. So yeah, so it's important that we get the balance of of the environment, but also the cells. So with new technologies, we're now able to to take um, cells uh, from uh, from, for instance, skin biopsy, and then genetically kind of trick them to be stem cells again. So these are cells that could be any other cell in the body. Any cell, yeah. Uh, and so these are called induced pluripotent stem cells because they've been induced to be pluripotent stem cells. They've been induced to be cells that can be any other cell in the body. And so then we can kind of direct them using the hormones and signaling molecules that would be uh, would be present in the developing body um, to direct them towards different cell types. And so now we can get human cell types. So it's particularly hard to get ones like ones in the brain. Uh, for instance, most people don't want to donate their brain cells because they kind of need their brain from day to day life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now we can use using these technologies, we can now get human brain cells that are relevant. They are not cancerous cells that have been living in a dish for a long time. 
So now we're getting more relevant cells. Now how can we get a really relevant environment? How can we move away from that flat plastic dish to something that actually replicates the environment of the body? And so that's what I've been doing my work with organ-on-chip technology is to produce kind of a little microchip that uses these micro sort of features, these this architecture on the micro scale to shape that microenvironment in 3D and produce produce an environment that the cells respond to uh, as they would in the body. So, Paul, what would be an important next step in moving to animal-free, human-relevant research just across the board? So I guess there's really three elements uh, to this. There's validation, awareness and uptake. So I guess underlining all three of these is also funding. But um, I would say the validation really is the most important there. So this is um, proving that these uh, models that are now being developed are good enough to to predict what's going to happen in a human. So we need, as I said, that funding to allow for that research to kind of to validate the model and show that it's working mm. so that you will sort of get that uptake. And the second, I guess, is, is, is awareness. So that's uh, allowing people to sort of to know about these, uh, these animal-free techniques and these new organ-on-chip, organoid, stem cell technologies that are coming up to show that there is an alternative and then naturally, really, you will you will get uptake then because if you can make the drug discovery process any cheaper, if you can get better prediction, if you can reduce animal research, there's no one that's going to say no to that. So, so really, Absolutely. it's uh, yeah, validation awareness, uh, which will then uh, lead to uptake. Hopefully, what would you say is the the biggest barrier then to the that validation awareness and uptake? As I said, (laughs) underlining all three is funding. And I think funding might be the one that's holding it back because we've, um, my research sort of sits in an unusual sort of cross disciplinary sort of area where sometimes it might be underfunded in that we Mm. have either doing the engineering side, developing that model. Yeah. Or doing the biology side and discovering something new and or developing a new drug. Whereas really the important work is actually now that these the engineering side has lifted off and sort of developed these new new techniques and um, new technologies. Really, now we need to kind of do the boring work of validating these and proving that they work to allow us then to really do that exciting sort of drug discovery and sort of find out some uh, new things about biology. Um, so, yes, yeah, certainly funding is is fairly important there in terms of, of supporting this research and allowing it to to get to fruition. So um, most people listening to the podcast won't be scientists working hands-on. So what might they do to help? Yeah, so I, I think you can obviously donate to, to, to various charities that are supporting animal-free research, uh, but also it's, it's campaigning towards alternatives. I think it's it's much more positive and effective use of time and effort than, say, campaigning against animal research, which many people yeah. don't want to do anyway, is, is to actually push towards an alternative and, and provide solutions. So it's uh, it's very expensive to produce a new drug. And um, mm. and so really, if we can find ways to do this cheaper it, uh, and more effectively, then people are, it's going to be taken up. So, um, so yeah, I think so pushing these new techniques and technologies that allow for animal free research, I think it's going to be the most effective way of, of reducing animal usage uh, in, in science. 
That really is a win-win, isn't it? It's a really positive, solutions-focused message that, you know, hopefully everybody can get on board with and and are starting to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also um, petitioning the government as well. I know that uh, Animal Research UK has has been pushing towards a kind of net zero, a bit like sort of carbon zero emissions, uh, a net zero for animal uh, research in the UK. And I know the US government, uh, the EPA there, have actually committed to stop funding um, and requesting tests on animals by 2035, I think it is, uh, which is very ambitious. Yeah, but I think it's, it's these yeah. kind of ambitious sort of large scale projects uh, that will release funding and allow the uh, technology to progress and and, uh, and hopefully actually make a difference in, in, in the uh, drug discovery world as well. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Free Labcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be huge here. Huge luck with with your work we look forward to hearing more about how that how you get on thank you very much paul's just given us a masterclass in why human relevant animal free research is really the only way forward for the good of patients animals and for science itself paul is one of a growing number of young researchers who are championing this win 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 way of doing research which can give us all so much hope for the future. Well, that's all we have time for in this episode of the Animal Free Labcast. Huge thanks to Paul for joining me. In the next episode, I'll be talking with Animal Free Research UK supporter and fundraiser, Steph Jones-Giles. If you've been inspired by this conversation and would like to help, the best way to do that is visiting animalfreeresearchuk.org and making a donation, if that's something you can do right now. If not, you'll find loads of other ways on the website to support medical research that's helping cure diseases faster without animal suffering. From me, Carla Owen, thanks so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share far and wide.